0: Welcome to the Akskala Podcast by University of Oxford South Asian Art Society. This is your host, Shishir Rao. In today's episode, we're going to wrap up our first season of the Akskala Podcast series. Now, over the season, we've discussed a myriad of concepts native to Indian classical music, both Hindustani as well as Carnatic, the South Indian form of music. Now the purpose of this podcast series from its inception was to take an academic look at many subjects, themes, concepts, ideas taught in the Indian classical music environment from guru to shishya. However, for me personally, and for many other students whom I've talked to, sometimes just learning about a concept isn't enough to really understand its purpose, the, the concept's place within the larger galaxy of Indian classical music concepts and how they all are interconnected and how they all connect to one another and also perhaps connect to worlds outside the little bubble of Indian classical music, maybe to jazz or maybe to hip hop or art in general. So the best way I've learned about many of these concepts and really explore some of these concepts is from first principles. Try and look at the thing, whatever the thing may be, in its bare bones format, in its incredible skeletal format. And incrementally build up the concept, the idea, until it starts to make sense in perspective, in relation to other concepts in art, Indian classical music specifically maybe, or just even in relation to human intuition. So in this Reflections episode, we're going to do something a little funny. We're going to look at the episodes that we've made, produced, and pushed out, but not in the order that they were produced and pushed out. So let's start with the episodes relevant to the discussions with Shri Raghavan Manianji, a Carnatic musician and guru. In those episodes specifically, we tore down the scaffolding and came down to first principles. We examined the elements of Indian classical music at large, and these elements tell us something about how Indian classical music exists, functions. So Raghavanji breaks down our music into three components. Melody is the prime component, while rhythm is a secondary but closely allied component, and poetry is the last component. Also, he demonstrates that music is a functional interdependence of these three components. When these three components work together, they create music. Sometimes some components are more independent than other components, like melody can exist and be presented without the other two components, rhythm or poetry. However, poetry presented solely, all by itself, is a bit of a problem in the medium of music. Poetry, sans melody and rhythm, is just a bit of a recitation. And perhaps it's hard to find a place in music where this type of presentation would be acceptable, appropriate. Now, with all that being said, poetry with one of the two, say rhythm, is a great expression of poetry, and that too musical. As it currently stands, I for one have not heard too many renditions of poetry interlaced with solely rhythm, as a form of Hindustani or Carnatic or Drupad classical presentation. That being said now, there are some exemplary, albeit rare, renditions of exactly this Phenomenon in the world of Indian classical percussion. Pandit Kishan Maharaj, one of the genius tabla players of the 20th century belonging to the Binadas Karana, had a composition in tabla that he used to render. And the composition was really a very clever, beautiful, original mix of words, poetry, as well as tabla bhols, bhols being the strokes of tabla. My explanation really won't give this beautiful composition its due. So we're very lucky that we have a live recording of Pandit Kishan Maharaj Ji presenting this composition in a live concert from 2003 in the city of Banaras. And taken from a YouTube clip posted by Tushar Kulkarni Ji, I've edited the content for brevity and presented here in two parts. The composition recited as poetry and second, the composition played on the tabla. Gana-naam, Ganapati Ganesh lambodar so hai, Bhuja-chara-ek-dant-chandrama-lalata-raja, lalata raja brahma brisnu Tala tal day dhrupa Game To ach-bichitra-gana-na-ta-aj-miradhanga-bhaja-vai, miradhanga bhaja dhat dharad dhar dhar-dharak-dhāna, nagya nagya tin now, what we heard there was a composition which had two parts, one of poetry in the very beginning, and towards the end, a part consisting solely of tabla bolds, tabla strokes. Now, one might say, how can the tabla play the poetry That doesn't really make very much sense. The tabla cannot play Sanskrit, the language of the poetry. The tabla plays the language of the tabla, which is, as we've discussed, shown through tabla bholz. Now, what if there is a mapping, perhaps not bijective, but a mapping nonetheless between Sanskrit and the language of tabla? There are elements of Sanskrit which can be directly translated into sounds that could actually be produced by the tabla. Pandit Kishan Maharaj Ji and the second component of this musical clip demonstrates exactly that. He sets this composition to a framework of tintal of 16 beats and shows us exactly how this expression of poetry and rhythm fits beautifully into this incredibly traditional 16 beat metric. 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. With that we see a little bit of elemental creativity involving two of the elements, rhythm as well as poetry, something that we seldom see in the world of Hindustani and Carnatic classical music at large. To conclude this discussion of poetry interlaced with rhythm, I'd like to say this is not an alien concept. It might be a little rare in Hindustani-Carnatic vocal exposition. However, It's actually a well-known type of music around the world. It's the basis of hip-hop and rap. Hip-hop music capitalizes on the idea that spoken word set to rhythm is a beautiful, unique way of expressing emotion and expressing creativity in two axes. The axes of rhythm could be creative with how you set the words to the beat and second the axis of poetry itself you can be creative with how you develop your poetry and develop your lyrics you can look to the pantheon of past poets past works in multiple languages if you so please and in this very special way hip-hop has found its own identity completely unique at once similar to more traditional forms of musical exploration in rhythm and melody and poetry but yet so distinct all on its own. Also another reason why hip-hop is incredibly beautiful is because explorations in the field of hip-hop often are commentaries on today's problems, problems of the 21st century, as opposed to poetry remarking on the problems of the 19th, 18th, 17th century and further back. Hip-hop is commentary on today. And as we've discussed with many guests on this podcast series, including Nachiketa Yakundiji, Raghavanji, as well as Arundraviji, we should be creating music that comments on today's problems. And so, for all these reasons, Indian classical music at large can really be inspired from the trajectory, the growth, the story of hip hop. Not only could we further explore the two dimensions, of rhythm and poetry, deeper, and understand the interplay of these two elements better. But also, we could use this mode of creation as a platform to talk about today's problems, something we truly need in the world of this incredibly traditional art. We absolutely need to preserve this art, but also, we need to keep it contextualized today and the problems that people face now as opposed to problems that people face 50, 100, 200 years ago. Another thing that Raghunji did mention is music without poetry at all. And that's something that's really beautiful. And we already see loads of it. Specifically, we see it in instrumental Indian classical music, whether we take the sitar or sarod in Hindustani, or veena or violin, perhaps, in Carnatic. We see presentations of ragas without any component of poetry, without any component of lyric. To take it a step further, in Hindustani instrumental music, we have the creation of pieces set to rhythm called Gat. Gat is specifically a melodic movement set to rhythm, and it's cyclical. That means that a composition starts at the first line, goes through what is known as the astai in Hindustani music, comes back to the first line, the mukhara, goes to the antara, and then comes back to the first line again. Always ends with the first line. But this entire movement of Astai have no lyrics. They're just pieces of music set to sarakam, set to notes. It's hard to find a home for this type of music in vocal renditions. Oftentimes vocal renditions imply that there has to be a lyrical component. Not only do we discuss this in episodes with Raghavanji, we also discuss this later on with Pandhatarun Ravidji. Both maestros have their own take on the subject of music presented without lyric, without poetry. But the conclusion is very similar. The general gist of the matter is, why can't there be a music without lyrical content, without poetry? Why can't there be Hindustani or Carnatic renditions solely focusing on, on two of the elements, which is melody and rhythm. Perhaps this is a bit of a call to arms, for musicians, Hindustani and Carnatic and Drupad musicians around the world, to develop music. Without the foundation of poetry, without the foundation of lyrics at its base. Now, this may seem quite an alien concept. However, we already see a little bit of it, in various forms of classical music in India. Specifically, let's look at Drupad. As well as the ragam tanam pallavi structure in Carnatic classical music, as we discuss in the episodes with Raghunji, as well as Hindustani music presented in the style of Agarakrana, we see the concept of nom tom alap, which is alap set to beat, set to rhythm, but using what some people say are nonsense syllables, like tom, na, dir, dar. The eminent poet Amir Khusro, of course, would have a different interpretation of these sounds. He firmly believes that these are sounds which are reductions of words found in ancient Indian languages, ancient Middle Eastern languages, including Farsi, Urdu, Hindi, and of course root languages such as Sanskrit, and the mixture, the combination of all of these to take it properly a uh, full circle here, those sounds which I just presented actually could be found in renditions of tabla solos as seen in the clip of Pandit Kishan Maharaji. But we slightly digress here. Wherever the root of these sounds may be, if they're indeed reductions of proper Middle Eastern and South Asian classical languages, or just words designed to resemble the sounds made on percussion instruments such as the tabla, pakawaj, mridangam, the point of the matter is this type of melodic creativity, perhaps set to beat, is a type of music which has less semantic content than musical creativity through actual words in Hindi, Braj, Sanskrit, Farsi, etc. Let's hear an example of this by Ustad Hussain Saeeduddin Dagar, one of the greatest Dagarbani or Dagar-style Drupad vocalists of the 20th century. This is a presentation of... Nom tom melodic improvisation in rag bhairav. Although the beat is perhaps invisible and not explicitly perhaps codified by a percussion instrument such as a pakwaj, most appropriately used in drupad style music, you can hear the rhythm by the way Sayedul Dinji sings. Just as a brief example, uses re na a lot, right? Re, 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 re na, and then he proceeds to use syllables such as te, de, do and no frequently cutting up the syllables to fit an improvised rhythmic structure. It's all in the mind of Sayuda Dunji and he's just keeping an implicit layout. One, two, one, two, one, two. Something like that, right? Now, one may argue this is filled with semantic content, but we're not able to decipher it because we don't know the reduction. The reduction to the language that we do know, such as Braj or Sanskrit. While there may be variations of this which is styled to be semantic in value and presentation. This type of alap, known as nomtom, is specifically not. It is an arrangement of syllables which fit the movement of the notes and can be really looked at only syntactically, as opposed to being deconstructed semantically. There is a grammar here, and that's what I mean by syntax, right? There's a way that these syllables are put into order. For an absolute genius like Sayyiduddinji, it's probably intuitionalized at this point. But the point is, you don't end certain phrases on certain syllables, or certain vowel sounds, to be precise. To go back to the central thesis here, this type of music is a combination of melody and rhythm, songs, lyric, or poetry, and generally lacking meaning in a language-driven way. Now, with these parameters, I see a couple things potentially happening here. I see that music actually could be created without lyrics. First of all, instrumental music does it all the time. Second of all, there is actually a structure in vocal music designed to do exactly that, this nom-tom structure. So with the right type of melodic movements and the right construction, an entire presentation, an entire concert can be devoted to this type of music. I can genuinely see that happening. Another thing I see happening, which is a bit more difficult to do, probably would rely on interdisciplinary approaches with linguists as well as musicians and even rhythmic uh, percussion experts. I see that perhaps these monosyllabic sounds, r, no, nom, tom, can actually be built from the bottom up. A language can be built from the bottom up, such that there is some form of semantic construction happening simultaneously along with musical expression, improvisation, using these exact sounds. As just briefly discussed earlier, there is some literature to preface this type of thinking. As I said, the eminent poet, Kusro, found definitions for many of the syllables that are frequently used in Taranas as well as this Nom Tomalab. For example, he would say dhar is a reduction of the word under, which means inside. Yala is a reduction of Allah. And whether or not he actually created this language is of greater mystery. But by codifying it, he found a way to use monosyllabic sounds to create rich meaning. Now, moving on from these discussions of the interplay of these three elements, melody, rhythm, and poetry, let's actually discuss how the improvisational landscape works and how the interplay actually functions in presentation of a raga, presentation of a thought. In the episodes with Shubhangi we discussed something pivotal to creation, improvised music. In Hindustani as well as Drupad, as well as Carnatic classical music, we discussed the concept of pace. We already discussed what pace is and how pace functions and analogous interpretations of pace using uh, physics. However, what we haven't discussed here, is pace in Hindustani the same as the pace in Carnatic, And is the pace in Hindustani the same as the pace in Drupad? Is pace incredibly contextualized to the medium of artistic expression? From what I hear and from what I see, my gut tells me that pace is actually slightly different. For me, Carnatic is a little busier. And Hindustani has more slower and elongated expressions. More long phrases of akar, a, ah, as well as holding notes, as opposed to jumping between them or moving intricately amongst them. While Carnatic, on a very superficial level, is more that. It's a lot of movement. Perhaps at its root, it's because the definitions of beauty in Carnatic are not always overlapping with the definitions of beauty in Hindustani. And thus, what people try and do in expressing Carnatic artistry is a bit different than what is considered beautiful in Hindustani. And thus, PACE, an integral component of what is beautiful, is naturally different now we see that actually, pace cannot really be judged objectively, rather it's contextualized. First off, pace is defined in part by what type of music you're presenting. In Hindustani, pace defined may really be quite different than the pace defined in the world of Carnatic, which really might be quite different than the pace defined in Drupad. Now those are quite structural biases that go into the definition of pace. But also, there are more personal or situational biases that go into the definition of pace. For this, let's look at most common stratifications of types of musicians. Let's just focus on Hindustani to not get it too complicated here. And let's just split it up between Hindustani vocal and Hindustani instrumental. Now, the definition of pace in instrumental is slightly different than the definition of pace in vocal styles of Hindustani. Now, if I can cut up vocal into one more layer, into Garana, the expectation is completely different in Agra Garana than it is in Kirana, which is completely different than the expectations in Gwalior. So the pace actually is defined in part by that as well. What is busy in Gwalir actually is very different than what is busy in Jaipur. In my perspective, just as an example, what is busy in Jaipur can even be considered quite patient in Gwalior. However, what is busy in Gwalior is really quite tumultuous and way too busy in the world of Jaipur. Just as an example. Now that's just looking at stratifications based on Garana. Now let's stratify, just within the realm of vocal musicians, let's stratify by voice type. Soprano, tenor, bass, baritone. How we hear Baritone voice is completely different than how we hear a soprano voice, simply because they're baritone and soprano respectively. And thus, our conception of pace is automatically biased from this point on. The exact same phrase sung by a baritone sounds generally more patient than when it comes out of the voice of a soprano singer. But it has nothing to do with the actual rendition of the phrase. It has nothing to do with the speed at which the phrase was rendered, but rather are preconceptions attached to the voices itself. Now, some of these preconceptions are examples, but the truth of the matter is, it just shows that actually we see pace as being a function of the genre of music, a function of the type of Music itself, instrumental, vocal, a function of the gharana, perhaps, if we're looking at Hindustani specifically, a function of the timbre, of the vocalist, if we're looking at vocal music specifically. And we haven't even looked at, for example, the biases endemic in Carnatic, Carnatic instrumental to be specific. Also, there are many biases tied to the time birth cohort effect, as it's called in epidemiology. Basically, our understanding of, of speed, busyness, chaos in the world of 2022 may be very different to the concepts of pace and busyness, even in the same genre of music back in the 1950s, which may be very different than the concept of busyness and time and whatnot in 1900, and so on and so forth. So the birth cohort effect also plays a large role. Looking at it another way, on a related note, Ustad Amjad Ali Khan Sahib has famously stated in interviews that lengthy and long introductions to ragas in the form of long-form alap is incredibly boring in this century. That just goes to show that, actually, he sees that a rag with a very long alap in the beginning is already too slow for him. Perhaps the pace... Has to be brisker, otherwise he's quite simply bored. That might be true of all of us in this Netflix, iPhone, Facebook generation, right? We might all be completely so codependent on our electronic devices and streaming platforms that we actually experience the very same things that people in the 1950s found to be quite fast, to be today quite slow. Lastly, to wrap this section up, Shubhangi said something very beautiful in her explication of pace and the explication of how to construct a raga from the bottom up. She said that presenting a raga, presenting a barakayal and a long-form rag, perhaps more than 30-40 minutes, should be like telling a story. And the story should have characters and the characters should interact. And the interactions of the characters and the story of all these characters going from beginning to end must be coherent, there must be some semantic value, semantic meaning, gleaned, from even alap, from laikari, from taan, all crucial elements of Hindustani ragvistar. However, just going back to this concept of birth chord effect, how we look at a story is completely different today than how people used to look at stories. Now let's look at more concrete examples of stories. Let's look at films. This might be a gut intuition here and frankly may really be hard to prove but I feel that movies today are busier than they used to be back in the 90s or even further back in the 80s. And what do I mean by busy? Do I mean longer films or shorter films? No, no, no. I just mean is the plot fast moving like a rom-com or a thriller or a heist film? Things are moving briskly. There's a lot of action. Maybe there's even the classic Paul Greengrass kind of handheld video camera effect where Things are shot in documentary style. So it adds to the to the drama, the suspense, and the edge-of-the-seat action that we all came to see. Is there more of these types of films now than there were back in the day? Of course, is it confounded by actual technological advancements which allow these films to manifest in the first place? I'm not sure. And to be perfectly honest, there might not really be a quantitative, objective metric here, right? The real question here is, do people expect more shots or more cuts in the film to keep their attention because a slower pace of storytelling would not keep their attention and ultimately bore the audiences. And is this true about storytelling in general? Whether the storytelling is through film or through Kayal, regardless, our performances today have faster paced storytelling at its heart to cater to the modern 21st century audience. Is that perhaps why Drupad is less popular today than it was maybe 40, 50 years ago? I'm not sure, but they all do beg the question. What is pace, and can pace change? Is pace subject to biases? Is pace subject to the time period we are in? Ultimately, are we starting to see that pace is actually more subjective? With that, we finish up on this elaboration of pace. Lastly. To finish the season's episode, we look at an example of the elements of Hindustani classical music in action. Kalyan. This is the very first two episodes that we produced for the Akskala podcast series. And in these two episodes, we looked at what is this enigmatic concept of Kalyan. Now, in the episodes with Nachiketa Yakundiji, as well as the reflection episode after, we, we did dissect Kalyan a bit more. But is Kalyan a case study of something larger, something more generalizable in the constructions of Hindustani classical music? Yes. I think Kalyan points to a trend, a pattern, a way of thinking, one of the natural fruits of the evolution of this beautiful form of music. The idea of raganga. The idea that There are many ragas in the universe of ragas, and perhaps one way to tie them together is with the thought system. But perhaps another way to look at ragas and their connections is through the raganga system. Ragangas are constructs, specifically phrases found in ragas. Not only is it found in one raga, but it's a common phrase found in many ragas. For example, a phrase might be endemic yaman but might also be found in yaman kalyan may also be found in nand and that same phrase may also be found who knows in tilak it's just a hypothetical example here but the beauty of looking at ragas in this way is that now you can look at one raga as a composition of ragangas now when you compose ragangas together you get a raga basically by weaving 15 different phrases, for example, together, you get Ragnand. But if you weave seven different other phrases, you get rag Bhairav. Now, when you look at phrases as the building blocks of ragas, as opposed to structures of weaved notes, you now look at ragas completely differently. Within individual notes, there's really no heart. One can say no feeling. I'm just singing Sa or Re or Ga. But within a phrase, you get more emotions, a spirit attached to that phrase. Now when you take the phrase and you drop it in Nund, you get that feeling, those emotions, expressed in that microcosm of Nund. At this point, one question just really jumps out at me here. Now this question may be one of those unanswerable questions, you know? But it's probably good food for thought anyway. Now the phrase, comment about telekamod and Nand. Does the phrase in Nand, Exhibit exactly the same spirit as the same phrase put in Tilakamod. Very simple question. I'm not really sure, to be honest. But you do get some interesting nuggets out of this thought experiment. For one, you get the idea that these ragangas, these phrases, are transmissible. Yes, that's granted, they're found in many ragas. More importantly, the spirit may also be transmissible. And on top of it all, now you get an interesting recipe book. What is this recipe book? The recipe book has finite number of ingredients, but you could put the ingredients together to form new recipes. Now what are the ingredients, what are the recipes? Ingredients in these cases are the ragangas, these phrases. Now you have a recipe book to create new ragas. If you put the phrases together, in beautiful ways, in ways that the spirit perhaps not only exists in the microcosm of the phrase itself, but maybe a larger spirit is preserved in the raga, which is a composition of many spirits, many of these ragangas, then you get a new novel raga. This novel raga being the recipe, of course, and the final cooked product. The point here is the ingredients are finite, perhaps, but the combinations could be endless. You could really be creating new ragas with a nice melange of spirits from different phrases which haven't been put together in exactly the same way that you're thinking of and if done correctly you could get a very beautiful product now why go about it this way instead of just putting notes together well if you put random notes together more often than not you just might get cacophony might get horrible dissonance this dissonance is not conducive to proper music one may say, of course. Now, in order to avoid the dissonance, you could go by this raganga route. You can use established phrases with established spirits to create something brand new and unheard. And in this way, Kalyan and our conversations with Sri Chiketa Yakundiji tell us about something more interesting, more generalizable in the world of Hindustani classical music. It tells us about new methods of innovation in this age-old field, new ways to look at the same ragas new ways to look at groups of ragas, and new ways to look at categorizations of ragas itself. Kalyan is a case study, for sure. It's a great case study because so many masters have taken a look at Kalyan. Ustad Amir Khan sahib, as we show in the episodes, Pandit Kumar Gandrav as well, and Kishori Yamankar Ji, Guru of Pandit Arun Ravidji, has her own rendition of Yaman, which is completely different and has her own benchmark of what is Kalyan. It's completely different perhaps than what is envisioned by Ustad Amir Khan Sahib and Pandit Kumar Gandharji. We're not even creating new ragas here. We're just showing that the age-old ragas that we know and love have so many different ways to be expressed, which probably means something quite interesting. These phrases may have an established spirit, yes, but if you weave these phrases in a unique way, the macro picture is completely different then establish routes of the same raga. For example, Ustad Amir Khan Sahib weaving the same phrases of iraag yaman yields a completely different yaman than Pandit Kumar Gandharvji's, whose yaman is completely different than Kishori Thay's. In this way, we build a new raga out of a very old established raga. New ways of looking at the same thing. So with that, we wrap up our discussion on raga And that was the final topic for today's Reflection episode, looking back at all the concepts that we touched upon in the first season of the Oxcala podcast series. Now, this first season really was a labor of love. We'd like to thank everyone that came together to get this first season running. There are way too many people who helped make this happen, but if I could dial it down to a couple groups here. First and foremost, it would be the gurus, the gurus around the world supporting our endeavors here. We're so thankful that so many gurus were so truly generous with their time and were willing to contribute material and have discussions with us. So without the blessings and the guidance of our gurus, we couldn't be anywhere. So again, thank you so much. Also, we'd like to thank fellow artists, fellow musicians, fellow colleagues, fellow DPhil students, specifically Milad Nazarzadeh for helping us out with equipment, Ashika Ashaker for helping us out, with the design of all our visuals and our logo and some of our promotional material, the leadership committee at the Oxford South Asian Art Society, and specifically, we couldn't have done it without Gargi Purandare helping us at the inception of this project with video editing, in addition to logistics, in order to get this podcast series off the ground. And last, but definitely not least, we'd like to thank our listeners of the long-form podcast episodes, as well as the people who watch the video material posted on youtube thank you to all those who gave us both positive as well as critical feedback we definitely need to learn from it and just get better so it's very much appreciated and with that we're going to be ending season one and we look forward to coming back for season two this is ox color podcast